Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the previously untold story of how, on January the 3rd, the Justice Department organised a group of top-secret government units, the FBI's hostage rescue team, the FBI's render safe team, and special response and SWAT teams from the FBI, the ATF, and the U.S. Marshals Service Special Operations Group to protect the Capitol and the nation's top leaders from an assault they predicted, but which the Congress and the Capitol Police were not aware of. Joining us is William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times, the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book, On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. He also has an ongoing series at Newsweek examining the January 6th Capitol riot, where his latest article is, Secret Commandos with Shoot-to-Kill Authority Were at the Capitol. We will discuss the massive intelligence failures for which no one has been held to account while much of the focus of the investigations underway is on who was behind the insurrection as opposed to why it was allowed to happen. Then we'll get an overseas perspective on how our allies, in particular the Germans, see the growing divisions in our country as the fate and future of American democracy itself appears to be on the line. Joining us is Constance Stellenmüller, the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution. She previously served as the Director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office, and we will discuss how internal challenges to American democracy impact U.S. foreign policy, particularly now as Putin threatens Ukraine. Then finally, we will speak with Stephen March, a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets, whose latest book out today is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. He joins us to discuss his article at The Guardian, The Next U.S. Civil War is Already Here. We just refuse to see it. And before we go to our first guest... In order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction, I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years and also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the U.S. Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the National Resources Defense Council. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he also has an ongoing series at Newsweek examining the January 6th Capitol attack, where his latest article is Secret Commandos with Shoot-to-Kill Authority Were at the Capitol. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. And the revelations that there was these secret commandos with shoot-to-kill authority at the Capitol. And in fact, on January the 3rd, they had a meeting of the FBI's hostage rescue team, the FBI's national render safe team, an FBI SWAT team from the Baltimore field office and the special response team from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms and the U.S. Marshals Service Special Operations Group. 
So this was all done by the Attorney Generals, by the Justice Department. And I guess the question that you raised at the end of your article is, why was the DOJ the only people on the ball? Have you had any answers to that at this point? Well, the most important thing about this revelation is, first, that there's so much we still don't know about what happened last year. And the the fact that there were these low-profile and highly secretive commando teams uh, readied for the events of January 6th, you know, tells us a story of what was going on behind the scenes um, that is not easy to explain because those teams were not necessarily at the Capitol to deal with protests. They were there to deal with catastrophic events, uh, a terrorist attack, uh, something involving a weapon of mass destruction, and then finally the possibility uh, that the presidential successors, three of whom were in the Capitol that day, Vice President Pence, the Speaker of the House, and the President pro tem of the Senate, uh, that, that they would be able to protect them and, and evacuate the Capitol. So, yes, these secret commandos were mobilized, but we need to remember at the same time that because they are secret, they, their mobilization and their mission was largely unknown to the Capitol Police and most people who were uh, defending the Capitol that day. And indeed, it wasn't until well into the afternoon after the Capitol had been breached and after Vice President Pence had been secured in the basement and after uh, Nancy Pelosi and Senator Grassley were evacuated to Fort McNair, um, that the FBI and these special operations group played any role at all, which was basically to just help out at this emergency point at about 4.30 in the afternoon to ensure that the Capitol could be uh, be cleared, uh, people could be evacuated, and that the threats could be mitigated to allow the joint session of Congress to continue to operate. But clearly, all of the assets that I mentioned were not deployed in in full strength prior to the storming of the Capitol. The FBI's hostage rescue team is 350 strong. What percentages of these secret teams showed up? I think that there were about 400 uh, members of the Justice Department's various units, the Marshal Service, the FBI, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms that came to the Capitol. And and, and of that number, probably fewer than 100 were these uh, super secret commando teams that were uh, sent there originally to deal with these catastrophic threats, even if eventually they became part of the overall response force. So the continuity of government task, of course, is is one of the big tasks. That's why Pelosi was moved to Fort McNair along with Senator Grassley. The weapons of mass destruction aspect, that's the FBI's render safe team, right? Do they work in concert with the Department of Energy's NEST team, nuclear emergency search teams? Yes. I mean, these days, uh, and pretty much since the Clinton administration, Uh, The FBI is the lead agency domestically. And so though we talk about uh, the nuclear emergency search team of the Department of Energy, we talk about the national mission force of the Joint Special Operations Command, that's the the military super secret response team. They all fall under the uh, operational control of the FBI. Uh, since it is anticipated that anything that would happen domestically would involve some degree of law enforcement, some degree of a seizure of assets, some degree of uh, cordon, even possible localized martial law, uh, the FBI is the primary agency as the domestic law enforcement agency and not the military and not the nest teams. Uh, those all work with the FBI and indeed it appears that on January 6th, uh, these uh, additional assets, both um, 
members of the Department of Energy and the Joint Special Operations Command were present in Washington and ready to respond to catastrophic contingencies if they occurred. And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years and also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he also has an ongoing series at Newsweek examining the January 6th Capitol attack, where his latest article is Secret Commandos with Shoot to Kill Authority were at the Capitol. So... The meeting that took place, Bill, on Sunday, January the 3rd, with the heads of the half a dozen of these elite government special operations teams, uh, they met in Quantico, Virginia, but they were also deployed earlier that day, were they not, because there were bombs found at both the Republican and Democratic headquarters. Those cases still haven't been solved. So, again, I'm trying to figure out how many showed up there early on, because it was pretty extraordinary how that mob breached the cordons of Capitol Police and Metropolitan Police, who I think came later at any rate. So if there are 400 of these people, I would have thought they could have maybe held the perimeter. But were there just too many insurgents? Well, you know, I think that the whole my whole series has been an examination of this question Uh, of the readiness of the federal government, which was terrible, Uh, the blindness of the intelligence community, which is obvious, Uh, and then then third, uh, the size of the crowd and who they were. Because uh, while we think of this crowd as maybe a few tens of thousands of people, the, the Secret Service itself now says that they estimate that 120,000 people were there. Uh, protesting on the mall and around the Capitol, and then about 1,200 people actually entered the Capitol building. Well, you do the math. I mean, there were a total of about 900 D.C. police and and about a similar number of U.S. Capitol police, 1,800 people, not just uh, defending the Capitol building itself, but all of Capitol Hill, uh, the 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 Senate office and buildings and the House office buildings. And then because pipe bombs were found uh, in the morning at the Democratic and Republican National Convention headquarters, uh, also responding to those pipe bombs and and dealing with potential other hidden bombs in trucks and cars that were parked around Capitol Hill. So not every one of those, uh, let's say, uh, 16, 1700 uh, police officers were actually at, at the Capitol itself, around the Capitol, and and there were met, you know there are four sides to the Capitol, and the crowds did overwhelm uh, the police forces, and they did overwhelm those police forces because essentially everyone underestimated how many people would be there, and uh, as people surged forward, even those who never entered the Capitol, as they uh, scaled the the bike racks, which are used as uh, as improvised fences, as they uh, came up the Capitol steps, as they got on onto the portico outside the Capitol, and then as they breached the Capitol from all sides, east, west, north, and south, uh, the police were definitely uh, completely overwhelmed and 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 were completely unable to stop those who entered the building. I, I think that just no one really anticipated the violence and nobody anticipated the size of the crowd, despite abundant evidence that this was going to be a huge crowd. And even events on January 5th, which indicated that they were looking for violence, which uh, there were a number of arrests on January 5th. So to me, uh, it's it, the inadequacy of the federal response, the, the mistakes of the federal response uh, are what we can do something about today. And this idea that somehow that finding the Donald Trump smoking gun for January 6th uh, 
uh, seems to me a, to be a, a, a false uh, hope and a false mission because what we have control over is, is once again holding the federal government accountable for its basic jobs. I mean, the fact that we list dozens of different agencies, U.S. Park Police, Secret Service, U.S. Capitol Police, D.C. Police, FBI, U.S. Marshals, uh, all of them present at the Capitol that day tells us that this this large conglomeration of federal government uh, responders completely failed to do their jobs. That's something that we have power over today. Whether or not Donald Trump was involved or not, we we need to understand that the federal government failed, that the, those who were the protectors failed. And that's something that we can hold them accountable for. And though it is true that up till now, the U.S. Capitol Police Chief and the Sergeant at Arms in the House and the Senate have resigned, uh, no one else has really been held accountable. No, nobody has really uh, taken any responsibility of uh, all because they said, well, we did as well as we could do. And it's like, aren't, aren't we done with this era that started with 9-11, that it's okay for the government agencies to just say, well, we tried and we failed? Isn't it time for us to start holding these agencies accountable? And that is really the story behind secret commandos being there, that somebody anticipated that things were going to be so serious that they demanded that these secret commando teams be deployed. And yet at the same time, the Capitol Police and the D.C. Metro Police were essentially told that there was no real threat. Well, it sure as hell explodes this idea amongst Trump and his followers in, in the right wing uh, media that there's such a thing as a deep state. And when you say that too much focus is on Trump and not enough on the failure of these government agencies to coordinate and take responsibility for the inadequacy of their response. It seems to me, though, that what so far what we're learning from the House Select Committee's investigation is that this event was planned and it looks like Bannon and Trump and they were all in the loop. So, again, that's a failure of intelligence, isn't it? Or do we have a problem with our intelligence in as much as they don't spy on the president and he's in a circle? Well, again, you're making a lot of assumptions there, Ian, and I don't necessarily agree uh, that there was uh, any uh, coordination, if you will, uh, between uh, the Trump camp and the campaign camp uh, and the protesters. I mean, they certainly were whipping them up in any way they could, both in rallies on January 5th and then in President Trump's speech on January 6th. And they certainly were uh, thinking through, uh, even if it was pretty stupidly done, uh, what they could do on January 6th itself in terms of uh, if the proceedings in Congress were disrupted and if, in fact, uh, Vice President Pence or some other person uh, stood up in favor of Trump's uh, crazy and fanciful uh, intent to over, over to over turn the people's choice for president. But, but just because they were all there in their mock command center talking to each other doesn't prove that there was any connection or command of the people on the streets. And I haven't found any. So while the House on the one hand and all of the federal agencies now say, oh, it was a coordinated planned attack, uh, which which I think like makes that gives them an excuse to now in the future uh, employ more domestic intelligence and and, and more uh, surveillance of protest groups on the on the basis of the fact that they somehow were coordinated uh, when when in fact I I think that there were small pockets of people coordinated but not. Not everyone was coordinated, not 120,000 people, uh, not the 1,200 even that entered the Capitol. I mean, only 700 pl plus people have been arrested. So what about the other uh, the, the other 500 who, who entered the Capitol? They haven't been arrested. So even there, uh, I think that what the real challenge for us is in understanding January 6th is that no one 
has been arrested on a charge of insurrection. No one has been arrested on a charge of sedition. All of the arrests have been for various trespassing and various conspiracy charges. And that was a decision made and still is being made by the Justice Department and the FBI, which is to say that they don't want to argue that an insurrection took place because it would be impossible to prove it. And so we colloquially say that they were insurrectionists, but the reality is that the federal government is not backing that charge, even under the Biden administration, even with the House committee. They are not urging or pressing or demanding that these people be held on insurrection charges. And so that adds to the confusion of how we can evaluate what really happened on January 6th. I think that it's important to understand what the federal agencies did. I think it's important to understand who these 120,000 people were, not just the Proud Boys, not just the Oath Keepers, not just the, the, the charlatans who were talking revolution, not just the 700 or so people who have been charged with a crime, but who were these people? Because they're still out there in American society and, they're, and they are now seeing their own conspiracies behind what happened on January 6th. This is still an enormous open wound in American society. And we need to understand what actually happened in order to move forward in a really in a nonpartisan, uh, 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 consolidated way to understand what is the landscape of America these days and to stop stigmatizing uh, those who came to the Capitol and those who came to Washington on January 6th and spend a little bit more time and energy really wrapping our head around trying to understand who they were and what they hoped to achieve. That's what's important. So Donald Trump definitely uh, incited uh, the riots and incited people to go to the Capitol, but all of the evidence indicates that they were already planning to do that anyhow, Ian. Right. And so it's it's not that Donald Trump uh, directed the violence or directed the assault on the Capitol. All of the evidence we have now indicates that these groups were already talking about disrupting Congress. They were already talking about uh, entering the building before Donald Trump said a word on January 6th, and nobody was telling them to do so. This was an organic movement. And so understanding the organic movement and understanding the failures once again of the federal agencies to connect the dots, to move the information, to even understand the intelligence, which the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security spends billions of dollars monitoring uh, is really sh is the task that we have ahead of us. But along with the task we have ahead of us, which is to understand what happened, who the people are, and what motivated them, and that it was more organic than wasn't necessarily all planned by Trump and Bannon. Although, you know, obviously a lot, much has been made of the fact that the day before, on January the 5th, Bannon said, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow, strap in. Surely, though, somebody has to take responsibility and be held to account, don't they? I mean, can't you make examples of people? This this is not acceptable behavior. Maybe the FBI and the Justice Department don't want to charge under insurrection. Maybe they don't want to admit that it was an insurrection. But I think by, for all intents and purposes, it was an insurrection, wasn't it? I, I think that those who... Uh, brought weapons to the Capitol, not just guns, but everything from, you know, bear spray to to uh, tear gas to uh, electric batons and tasers. I mean, everyone who brought a weapon to the Capitol was an insurrectionist, period. They were, whether they breached the Capitol or not, they brought violence upon the government of the United States. I'm not in any way hesitant to say that. And Donald Trump himself probably incited a riot and himself was responsible for sedition. And, and so the, 
the weakness and and lack of courage on the part of the federal government to charge people with insurrection and to even charge Donald Trump with a crime is really what leaves us in this state a year later in which so many people are still struggling to understand what actually happened and what is fact and what is fiction. Right, but if you do charge Trump and others with sedition, if, particularly the political people, some of the Congress people who seem to have been involved, like Gosar and Bobbitt and others, under the 14th Amendment, they then are disqualified from running again. So this is a political hot potato. Oh, it is. There's no question that there has to be you know, tremendous navigation to get here. But it's the Justice Department that decides on what the charges are, not Congress. And so ultimately, it falls up to the Biden administration and the Justice Department to be clear about what it is that they want the end product here to be. This committee can meet for the rest of our lives and might not ever come down to a question of what what we are to learn from this. And after all, that's what the committee is reviewing what happened, that it can do this forever and, and skirt the question of actual insurrection, actual responsibility. I mean, just because Steve Bannon said something inflammatory does not necessarily mean that he was leading the charge. The charge was already happening. I've made that clear in my Newsweek article. People had been preparing for more than a month for what would happen at the joint session of Congress on January 6th. And those people have been arrested, but like organized crime mafia members, they're charged with the minimal provable offenses rather than the actual offense that they committed, which is bringing arms to the Capitol and violently uh, entering the building, breaking doors, breaking windows to get into the building. That in itself is insurrection. I have no problem with that definition. But to look to Donald Trump or any of these bonehead members of Congress or look for the Steve Bannons or the Rudy Giuliani's uh, that somehow might have pushed some button or flipped some light on that got all of these people to take violence against the Capitol, I think is a, is a false endeavor and it is a fruitless task. Well, William Arkin, I sure hope that the Attorney General Merrick Garland is reading your articles and listening to what you have to say. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ian, for having me on. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years and also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The General have no clothes, the untold story of our endless wars. And his latest book is On That Day, the definitive timeline of 9-11. And he has an ongoing series at Newsweek examining the January 6th Capitol attack, where his latest article is Secret Commandos with Shoot to Kill Authority were at the Capitol. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an overseas perspective on how our allies, in particular the Germans, see the growing divisions in our country as the fate and future of American democracy itself appears to be on the line. He changed his clothes and shined his boots and combed his dark hair down And his mother cried as he walked out Don't take your guns to town, son Leave your guns at home, Bill Don't take your guns to town He laughed and kissed his mom and said You're Billy Joe's a man Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Constance Stelzenmuller, who is the Fritz Stern Chair in on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, who previously served as the Director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office. Welcome to Background Briefing, Constance Stelzenmuller. Thank you very much for having me on. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a front page article in today's Los Angeles Times as Capitol Riot Anniversary Nears Western Allies Fear for Health of U.S. Democracy. And you're quoted in the article saying, it's becoming clear to everyone that January the 6th wasn't just an isolated episode. It was part of something larger, more deeply rooted and more pernicious. So expand on that, if you will, Constance. Well, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm your best uh, witness for that, since I'm a German living in Washington, D.C. I I think it is the work of the January 6th Commission has made it extremely clear that uh, there was a a run-up, a planning, uh, strategic intent to these endeavors, that this wasn't just a spontaneous riot. But how would it compare then to a similar constituency, I'm assuming, in Germany, like the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland. I'm sorry, well, how do you mean? Well, is it, is it a small percentage of the American body politic? In other words, if European leaders and analysts are concerned of the fate of American democracy, and then in November, the Stockholm-based European think tank, the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, uh, for the first time put the U.S. on a list of backsliding democracies. So the concern is out there, but it's also the resurgence of far-right parties. Right. Okay. It's a phenomenon across Europe as well, isn't it? So there are different things going on here. Again, I think really Americans don't need the Germans or the Swedes to tell them about the state of their democracy. I, in that LA Times article, um, answered questions. And the questions, I haven't seen the article yet, but I was asked particularly about European and German uh, reactions to January 6th and how that has shaped policy. I don't think I'm your best source on what is, you know, actually happening here and how America should be. I'm not here to lecture Americans. Okay. Um, the And yes, it is absolutely true that there are right-wing movements all across Europe. The, uh, the difference is that America has two parties and that it has, uh, and that one of those two parties is visibly steadily radicalizing, um, and that its base appears to believe uh, have have significant overlap in its beliefs uh, with that of the insurgents of January sixth. Um, in other words, in in Germany, to take my own country, um, the, uh, the right wing radicals uh, do play a role but they are relatively speaking, and I emphasize the word relatively here, politically marginal at uh, 10 point something percent of the vote in the last national elections. Well, there's a report that recently in a conversation with Vice President Kamala Harris that Angela Merkel, who's retired, of course, somewhat plaintively asked Vice President Harris, what is happening to America? So if that's true, then, in other words, people looking from the outside quite often have a very useful perspective. There's a Canadian political scientist who's concerned that by 2030, the United States will be a dictatorial country. So to my mind, these perspectives are useful. Sometimes we can't see what's happening to ourselves. Mm. Right. Again, I, I really want to emphasize this, that, that I think uh, Americans are perfectly capable of looking at their own country with clear eyes. Um, I mean, there are people like the historian Daniel Ziblatt, Timothy Snyder, um, I, a host of people, Anne Applebaum, who have written with great clarity and urgency about this. Uh, my colleague at Brookings, Jonathan Rauch, uh, just wrote a, a fantastic book called The Constitution of Knowledge, where he diagnoses in a very even-handed way something that he calls an epistemological civil war uh, that's going on in America. It's certainly true that that for Europeans, we're looking at a darkening security uh, environment in Europe. We've just come through four years of Trump. The bridge between Trump and the Biden administration was the the January 6th insurrection, if you will, uh, which ended with the calling of the election for Biden. Um, but, But there is... I mean, it's it's become very clear that that European governments, not just the one in Germany, have looked at this over the past five years now and said, "We're well, clearly we're better off with people who treat us as allies rather than as um, sort of hostile elements. 
But um, looking at the current politics of America, we might have to develop uh, a strategy that is composed in, in equal parts of cooperation with the Biden administration and hedging against a return of Trumpism in whatever shape or form. Well, in terms of the return of Trumpism, uh, your colleague there at Brookings, uh, Fiona Hill, I spoke with her recently, and she said that if Trump comes back in 2024 based on a lie, a fiction, it's game over for American democracy. So I assume that the Europeans would be incredibly alarmed at that prospect because Trump just endorsed uh, Orban in his re-election in Hungary. Yes, indeed. Well, Fiona, if, if I might say, has also written an admirable book uh, about this, by, if you'll allow me a, a sort of an ad flip for my colleague. Uh, it's called There's Nothing for You Here, in which he's written about this in great detail. But the reason why this is, uh, why the radicalization of the GOP and the continued belief of millions of Americans that the 2020 election was stolen from, from Trump is so alarming is precisely that the Kremlin appears to be eyeing political division in America and uh, the potential fragility of the transatlantic collection, con uh, uh, political connection and, and seeing an opportunity there that it could exploit by, by reclaiming a Russian sphere of influence. That I think is what the outrageous demands that the Kremlin laid out um, just before New Year's are about. They're basically, as, as Vladimir Putin full well knows, completely unacceptable uh, for, for Western governments. And I think the point here is to sow dissension, uh, weaken Western resolve and cohesion, and, and to make political gains at a time when actually Putin and the Kremlin himself are are in many ways weakened by, by the energy situation, by inflation, and by a rampant COVID crisis within Russia. Well, they've got uh, Tucker Carlson on Fox News cheering uh, for Putin and echoing his propaganda vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. But surely from the beginning, if you go back to 2016 and Putin's efforts to help elect Trump, he probably thought, like everybody else, that Hillary might have won. But... Putin had it covered because if Hillary would have won, Trump to this day would be running around organizing rallies of lock her up, lock her up and stop the steal. So Trump is the gift that keeps on giving as far as Putin's concerned. And surely the idea of Trump coming back is indeed game over for America, but a huge win for Putin. As I've said, yes. Yeah. Well, just in, in the last minute here, what can we do to avoid this outcome? We seem to have a, a GOP that would rather cheat than compete. Even as we speak today, it looks like uh, Senator Manchin's not going to cooperate in terms of uh, changing filibuster rules, so there probably won't be any laws protecting the next election. So it seems to be happening in plain sight here. Are we sleepwalking into some kind of catastrophe? Mr. Masters, again, I'm a German citizen who's a guest in this country Right. Um, it's a country I'm very fond of. I've lived here as a child and then as a graduate student and, uh, and now again as an adult for the past eight years. And I have watched the radicalization and the polarization of American politics with dismay. Um, and I've also watched, because I'm a constitutional lawyer by training and once in another century wrote my, my German doctoral thesis on American constitutional law, I have watched um, conservatives in particular, uh, radical conservatives, question American constitutional values in ways uh, that are to me profoundly shocking. And that to my father, who was a 17-year-old uh, German POW back in 1944-45, and who was very grateful for having been rescued by the Americans, uh, would have been even more shocking. Um, but... Again, it is, America is a grown-up country. Um, I have some faith in, in America's ability to, to reinvent itself. It's done that many times, and one can only hope that it finds the, the energy and the strength, again, to do that once more. But, but I say that in the full consciousness that a great deal depends on this, and not least the security of Europe and of my own country. And, and so... Um, you know, I have, like I think many, many people who are 
have very warm feelings about this country. I'm watching this with bated breath, with anxiety and, and keeping my fingers crossed. Well, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate your perspective. I really do. You're very welcome. May everything and, go well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Constance Stelzenmüller, who is a Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Centre on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, who has previously served as the Director of the German Marshall Fund's Berlin office. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with the author of a new book out today, The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. Democrats are out of power. Across the blue wide ocean, Reagan's president elect, fascist guard in motion, generals tell him what to do, stop your good time dancing, train their guns on me and you, fascist like dancing. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Marsh, a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include three novels, The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, and Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, as well as The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. His latest book, just out today, is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article at The Guardian, The next U.S. Civil War is already here. We just refuse to see it. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Marsh. Pleased to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And history is full of unexpected and sometimes tectonic and traumatic events. Like, for example, the Soviet Union collapsed. Nobody predicted it, or very few did. It happened yep. almost overnight. And as you point out, in your article at The Guardian, the next U.S. civil war is already here. We just refuse to see it. The civil war, on the eve of the civil war, most Americans had no idea that it was going to happen. And even, even uh, as you mentioned, South Carolina Senator James Chestnut, who did more than most to bring on the advent of the catastrophe, thought that only enough blood to fill a thimble would be spilled. And yet it turned out to be the most bloody war in American history to this day. There's still more casualties in the Civil War than there were in any of the wars America's fought. And on a per capita basis, of course, given the small population back then, it is an absolutely horrendous bloodletting. So uh, you feel that this is yet what we're living through, a similar period of denial about something that's staring us in the face? Well, I don't know if it's a similar period of denial because the the you know in the first civil war, uh, like Fort Sumter, the assault on Fort Sumter happened, and Jefferson Davis said it's probably nothing. So they were in a real they 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 really did not see it coming. Um, on the other hand, I think in our own moment, we're also kind of blind to the very deep structural uh, crises that are afflicting America right now, and which are 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 blossoming into violence. So. You know, no no periods are exactly the same. And of course, a, a contemporary civil war would be nothing like the first civil war. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's quite natural to be blind to what's staring you right in the face when it comes to the horrors of history. Well, one of the more alarming statistics that I've come across uh, recently is one that, of course, is pretty well known. And that is that there's almost 400 million guns in the hands of civilians in this country. But a yes. recent study from the University of Chicago, you know, there are variously, some say 70, some say 80 percent of Republicans believe that Biden's an illegitimate president and Trump won the election. Within that group, about 22 million Americans believe that uh, violence may be necessary to put their guy, Trump, in his rightful place back in the White House. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... And I mean, there was a more alarming uh, poll more recently that said one third of Americans believe that it was okay to use violence against your own government. Um, so, yeah, you're seeing things like the state lose the monopoly on violence, which are, you know, once that starts happening, things tend to fall apart pretty quickly. Like once you lose the the peaceful transition of power, that 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 is really sacred. And once it's gone, it's it's kind of gone. Um, and yeah, I think I think it's happening on a, on a number of fronts. I mean, I, I also think like the general feeling of the legitimacy of government on both sides is waning. I mean, you have 
five out of nine Supreme Court justices selected by a president who was who did not win the popular vote um, by 2040. Sixty-eight uh, percent of the Senate will be controlled by thirty percent of the population. The Electoral College, you know, is inevitably, without any question, going to produce a Republican president who loses the popular vote by many, many millions of votes. And I think that will that will cause, uh, you know, like people on the right are, are quite used to thinking of the government as illegitimate. They've been thinking that way since the '80s, at least. Um, I mean, you could say they've been thinking that way since the 1880s. But I think on the left, the people on the left are starting to realize, OK, this is not really a functioning democracy. It does not it does not represent popular will anymore. And as you argue in your article at The Guardian, the problem is not who is in power, but the structures of power. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's the like, I think we. it's so easy to get caught up in, especially with Trump. Trump to me is very much just a symptom. Like, I, I, I really believe that everything I wrote in this book would have happened if, if Hillary Clinton had been elected. Like, these are in 2016. I mean, these are these are deep trends. They are structural. And, and you know, I, I think it's really important. Like, it's so easy to get caught up in horse race politics, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene being cut from Twitter or something. You know, that's not where the focus should be. The focus should be on this very serious problem that the Constitution is broken. And, you know, I'm not it's a it's a work of great genius, but it's just decrepit and old and and no longer reflects reality. And um, and it, it's a very dubious proposition anymore that there is such a thing as American political unity on any number of questions. So, yeah, I, like I don't think, you know, hating on Marjorie Taylor Greene or hating on Donald Trump are uh, fun activities, but they're not they're not helpful. Like the like the, the, the problems are much deeper than them. And I take it that the problems are largely to do with the enormous amount of alienation in this country that Hillary Clinton talked about that constituency as as the deplorables. But it yes. was the constituency that elected Donald Trump and it is largely the constituency that now controls the Republican Party. And what I find extraordinary is that as much as you can identify them, and I agree with you, you know, beating up on these clowns that represent the new face of the Republican Party, along with Trump, is a sort of worthless and painful exercise in futility. But trying to understand what makes this constituency tick is something that there's, it's very lacking, I feel, and I wish I had some answers, except to say that the alienation is total and... There are no programs and no policies. There's no platform. The, the GOP doesn't have a platform. So what mm. explains that? Anger and alienation, but yet no ideas about what to do or how they should govern or even what they want. Well, I mean, I think I could divide it into two answers, both of which are quite depressing, unfortunately. I mean, the first one is that I think American government has essentially entered a, entered a post-policy phase where you know, actual government, like the Build Back Better bill is treated as this huge accomplishment, although we don't know if it's going to happen as we're as we're speaking right now. But, you know, for every other mature democracy, that's that's a Wednesday. That's just a budget. Like it's not that that's not some huge legislative achievement. And the legislature, the the, uh, the Congress is increasingly unable to do basic things like guarantee its own debt or or, you know, even, you know, provide security for itself in form in the form of uh, an inquiry into the people who attacked it. So the government's entering a period where it is essentially paralyzed and helpless. And at the same time, uh, you know, th there's a very important demographic shift where um, African Americans and Latino Americans are are rising, and and in terms of population, and also in terms of their prosperity. And everywhere around the world, where you know marginalized groups get towards equality over you know reach towards privileged groups, the privileged groups fight back and. You can see that everywhere. That's not an American ph phenomenon. It's not distinct to the particular American psychoses around race. Um, it is, it, or neuroses around race. It is, it is something that you see in India between Hindus and Muslims. It's something you see in Europe. It's something you see in all over Africa and the Middle East. And it's now it's happening in America as lower groups rise up to equality. Violence ensues. And I, I think, to me, if you're asking me what's the source of this, that's that's the that's the source of this toxic energy. 
And again, I'm speaking with Stephen March, who is a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include three novels, The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, and Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, as well as The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book out today is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article at The Guardian The next U.S. Civil War is already here. We just refuse to see it. So, Stephen, is that to say that a secession in many ways is already underway? Not a bloody one like the Civil War, but one in which a lot of Americans in red state America simply don't want to live with the rest of us, particularly with the minorities that you mentioned are on the rise, the African-Americans, Asian-Americans and Latinos in particular, the state of Texas and Florida would be examples where they're just passing laws essentially to maintain a tyranny of the minority. And if you combine that with uh, what you were talking about earlier, how 68% of, uh, what was that? Alarming? 68% of the country, 30% of the country will control 68% yeah, of the Senate. Right. If you combine that with that statistic, then I think, you know, you can make the argument that we are... I don't know whether we're heading into a permanent tyranny of the minority, but we're certainly heading into a tyranny of the minority if it hasn't already arrived. Well, it has already arrived. I mean, there's already been a lot of presidents who didn't win the majority vote and the Supreme Court, as I said, is five out of nine of them are elected by were selected by presidents who didn't win the popular vote. I mean, the problem with secession and much of the book is about secession because I think, honestly, it's it, I mean, it sounds horrible to say, but I think it's one of the best case scenarios for the future of America right now. Um, and it, it's not just the right, you know, it's not just it's popular in both red states and blue states and and, and increasingly on both sides. I mean, you know, the, the right has had this for a long time. The left is really going to ask have to ask itself probably within this year whether it wants to live in a country where abortion is illegal, you know, and whether that's the kind of country that it wants to belong to. Um you know, so the, so secession, I don't think, is necessarily a crazy idea. On the other hand, it's totally unconstitutional. The U.S. Constitution makes it more or less impossible to do because of the 14th Amendment. Um, you would need a, a total constitutional convention to make it happen. And then the other thing is that the U.N. actually makes it, you know, it's quite a it's quite a difficult process. Now, that, that said, it's not impossible. Like there are there are three times as many countries today as there were in 1945. But but on the other hand, it's not as simple as people want it. Therefore, it's going to happen. I mean, a, a large number of Americans want secession. Uh, like, like in the Republican Party, it would be a majority. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I mean, it, I, I'm sort of torn because I, I do think it's worth talking about. It's definitely a, a conversation that Americans should be having. But on the other hand, it, it's not it's very, very complicated and, and, a, and a thorny legal issue. Sure, but from the point of view of the left, if you consider the blue states of California and New York, for example, mm-hmm. um, here in California, we subsidize Mississippi. And oh, you do? Yeah, I mean, South Carolina gets $7 for every dollar it pays in taxes, right? Yes, you absolutely do subsidize them. I mean, so does Texas, but, you know, yeah, that that is absolutely true. Now, I mean... In ordinary times of solidarity, I don't think that would matter very much. But when they're, you know, going to change your laws, then and control your and control your legal system, it, not through necessarily through pseudo democratic means, it feels different, doesn't it? Right. But practically, I don't know how you can do it, and and in doing so, you condemn any kind of progressive in Mississippi to a future, a sort of medieval future. Well, I don't, I mean, I think what they would say, you know, you could make the argument from their point of view, which I've certainly researched and seen, and they would say that they would be dooming you to godless communism, right? right. So, like, okay. I mean, at a certain point, that's like... A fair tra- that's a fair trade, right? I mean, when, when marriages reach the point that the United States has reached, like, you sit the children down and say, you know, it's very painful, but sometimes people have to break up. And... You know, I, I really think like the differences between just to take as an example, like Mississippi, Tennessee and, and California, the differences between those two places are not merely political. They're 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 you can chart them in a whole number of social ways, including corporal punishment in schools, 
uh, gun ownership, church attendance. Uh, you know, these are really these are different political entities. And I, I mean, different social entities as well. As an outsider, like as someone who you know is from a different country, they, they are very different to me. And the fact that they're the same country doesn't really make sense. So in the short term, though, what you are suggesting here, let me quote from your article at The Guardian, Stephen, mm -hmm. what the American left needs now is allegiance, not allyship. It must abandon any imagined fantasies about the sanctity of government institutions that long ago gave up any claim to legitimacy. Stack the Supreme Court, end the filibuster, make Washington, D.C. a state, and let the dogs howl, and now, yeah. before it's too late. Yeah, I mean, you know, none of those things are extra democratic. They're all part of the democratic process. They've all been done before um, in the 30s. I mean, I, I think the filibuster is probably going to end by the by the end of this week. Um, but, you know, like I, I think one of the things is that if you're if you're if you're operating on, well, the other side isn't going to regard these decisions as legitimate. That's just nonsense. They don't regard anything that you do as legitimate and they don't really care about the legitimacy of these institutions. I mean, Mitch McConnell's shown that a, a million times. That's not, you're not dealing with people that you, that you can somehow convince, well, let's, 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 we'll, we'll all play baseball and it'll all, it'll all be, we'll all follow the rules. That's not, that's not the game they're playing and it's not the rules that they respect. So I, I, I just think there's a, there's a kind of inertia among certain kind of American liberals who've been educated that their country is the solution to history and that the American system is the greatest system the world has ever known, um, who don't who, who don't really think, who don't really understand how vulnerable it is and how and how easily it can be lost. And and then and, and also when it's lost, it, it's really lost. You know, like it, it, it will it will become illegitimate. And when people stop believing in it, violence tends to ensue. And get, that goes back to my initial observation about the mm -hmm. Soviet Union collapsing almost overnight. Do you think America could collapse or at least become a one-party state run by Trump's GOP? You know, I, I, this is a book of prediction and there are imagined scenarios, but I really like to stay as close to what I know as possible. Like, as clo like the, 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 the thing about this book is that it's the, it's the best available models. It's not worst case scenarios. It's not best case scenarios. It's like, here are the best available models. Here's where they're heading. And you know what those models, how those models operate is on what they call a complex cascading system, which is like weather in the sense that a, a whole bunch of factors feed into each other and, and enter feedback loops with each other. And that's why shocking things keep happening. Like why things that, you know, even though we have this uh, you know, amazing political commentary in the United States. They don't. They don't see what's happening um, very clearly because things seem to come out of the blue. And you know, civil wars tend to be that way. So Russia is one example. The English Civil War is also another example where they really didn't think it was going to happen until it happened. You know, in 1644. And it, there's also there's there's also a number of examples of that in South America and Africa and other places. Um, so. You know the the, the problem with pre, with predicting this stuff, like giving specific where's and when's and what will what will happen. I, you know, I don't, I don't really want to play with that because the, the, dealing with the facts are, are tough enough. And, and and the fact, but the facts would say that America is about to enter a period of extreme turbulence. Um, violence violence is definitely rising, and the institutions that can control violence are being, you know, uh, slowly losing legitimacy. So that it's just a very, very dangerous period. And how and when the fall will come, no one can know. But the trend is definitely going one way. Well, Stephen March, I thank you very much for joining us here today. My pleasure. Really enjoyed it. As much as one can enjoy a dep depressing conversation. Yeah, I know. Is it, is it, is it, is it depressing? Is it, is it enjoyable or not? I could tell. It was a pleasure okay. talking to you anyway. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen March, who is a novelist and culture writer who has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The New Yorker, Esquire, and many other outlets. His books include three novels, The Hunger of the Wolf, Raymond and Hannah, and Shining at the Bottom of the Sea, as well as The Unmade Bed and How Shakespeare Changed Everything. And his latest book out today is The Next Civil War, Dispatches from the American Future. And he has an article at The Guardian, The Next U.S. Civil War is Already Here. We Just Refuse to See It.
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.